The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said to the crowds, This is how it is with the kingdom of God. It is if a man were to scatter seed on the land and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow, he knows not how. Of its own accord, the land yields fruit. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, he wields the sickle at once, for the harvest has come. He said, To what shall we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use for it? It is like a mustard seed that, when it is sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. But once it is sown, it springs up and becomes the largest of plants and puts forth large branches, so that the birds of the sky can dwell in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to understand it. Without parables, he did not speak to them. But to his own disciples, he explained everything in private. The Gospel of the Lord. We have in both of our readings today, our first reading from Samuel and our Gospel reading today, the issue of what springs up in quiet without our realizing it because it's been growing beneath the surface of things. In the gospel, we have a very positive reality that springs up and grows, and in our first reading, a very negative reality. And it is important that we recognize that. All we have seen of David up until this moment has been his remarkable heroism, prudence, and faithfulness. And nothing about the way he has been portrayed indicates that what we see in this reading is even a thinkable possibility. And yet it happens. And as we recognize that, first thing we want to be conscious of is this is why a certain healthy caution with regard to attributing holiness or sanctity or remarkable faithfulness to any living person is something that must be done with great care. Because by all measures that we have leading to this point, when we look at David, we are looking at a saint. And then this happens. And this is not a small movement away from grace. We're not talking about venial sin here. We're talking about adultery and murder. We're talking about the misuse of power and authority and status. This is a political crime and a moral crime at the same time. 
What a remarkable and shocking moment this is. And, you know, it's all the more remarkable and shocking for the very matter-of-fact way that Scripture tells the story. There's no outrage in the narration. It is simply an unfolding of the details, and this is what happened next, and here is how it happened. Imagine if in our overheated climate today, this was what made the evening news, and we would have the predictable chorus of condemnation on one side and the equally predictable chorus of justification for the behavior on the other, all of which would correspond to what political party David belonged to. Scripture doesn't do that. It simply places before us this mysterious and horrifying event. And at the most surprising of moments at first glance, and this is the sobering lesson here, David is now king over Israel. He has been given rest from his enemies on all sides. His rule is secure. His status is firm. He has the loyalty of his subjects, the esteem of the people, friendship with God. He has wealth. He has comfort. He is at peace. And this seems to be the problem. Idle hands, as we say, are the devil's playthings. And we say that because it is true. We say that because time and time again, human experience has shown us that. We see, and one of the reasons that oftentimes areas afflicted with great poverty also know great crime is not just because people are desperate, but because there's nothing to do. There's nothing to occupy our time. There is no work. And what do we see with David? He has been given what we all desire, rest from our labors, rest from the dangers that beset us, stability, comfort, and we can catch our breath. And what do we see? That curiously, rest and peacefulness and being settled are as dangerous as being under open attack. Except the danger is hidden. Just like at the very beginning, the serpent slithers into the garden and in the place of blessing speaks the invitation to receive a curse, so here is David surrounded by blessing. And in that blessing, where again, as king, all is his. And what does he do? As Adam and Eve have done at the beginning, the eye fixes itself on the forbidden fruit, a good that is not mine to have, a good that is not mine to possess, but I have the means by which I can take it. 
How simple, how natural. The king who no longer goes out with his soldiers. The king who is at ease. The king who lets his guard down. The king who can enjoy the luxury that is his begins to think that everything is his. And so it is that into this heart, the heart of the bold shepherd boy who faced down Goliath with no greater weapon than his trust in the Lord, that one who endured so much hardness, harshness because he would not be unfaithful to the Lord, finds himself here, and there is no Goliath. There is no army besieging the city. There is no Saul breathing murderous threats out against him. And it's here, not on those other battlefields, that he is struck down. What an important and sobering and even chilling lesson that is for all of us that one must be cautious and careful and work to remain faithful, even and especially at the point of rest. This is vitally important because one of the great ways that the Lord speaks of salvation through the scriptures is in terms of rest, entering into his rest being settled in a place where we have rest from our enemies, rest from our labors. And what do we see here? There's a right kind of rest and a wrong kind of rest. And it may well simply be the case that this is the difference between resting in the Lord and resting in the blessings that the Lord gives us. And David clearly seems to have been resting in the blessings and not in the Lord. And it's not wrong to receive blessing. It's not wrong to rest a bit there. But ultimately, the heart and the mind must rest in the Lord. Resting in anything else leaves us vulnerable, even in blessing because in the end we'll end up resting in our comfort, in our self-indulgence, in our happiness. And we see that asserting itself here. David becomes rash, he becomes foolish, he's not even thinking. He is so fixated on this that he wants. The relationship he wants, the woman that he wants, the sexual experience that he desires, in the end, though, it is simply what he wants. And because he can take what he wants, he does so. And when it turns out that this pleasurable reality he desired is more complicated than he anticipated, his sexual union with Bathsheba results in a pregnancy. Note the gymnastics that David goes through, the work he puts in, the rest he doesn't have because now he is worried about being found out. 
And so he does whatever he can to cover up his crime. And let's not forget who it is, because there are other characters in this story besides David and Bathsheba. In particular, there is Uriah the Hittite. He is not a Jew. He is a Hittite, a man of a different people, who is loyal to Israel and actually serves as the armor bearer of the general that David is going to use to have him killed. And note what else we have here. We have the exploitation of the foreign resident. We have the exploitation of that one of a different culture because his rights aren't the same. It's not an Israelite's wife that David takes, or at least not a Jewish wife. Note, note how complicated this is. How, how this crime of David extends in so many different directions, even to the point of asking his own general to see to the execution of one of his officers. There's more here than sexual immorality, but that's all over it. We have the misuse of office. We have the betrayal of friendship. We have the exploitation of one whose status is conceived as being less. All of these things are at play here. David, who served the Lord with his whole heart, seems to be falling away with that whole heart. And the offenses keep multiplying. Because in the middle of all of this note, as Adam and Eve in the garden, what he doesn't do, he never turns to the Lord while he's immersed in this. He tries to find his own way out of this. And in the end, he makes that horrible choice to preserve my reputation and to keep my secret. I will sacrifice someone. This is a pattern that tragically reproduces itself across human history. And we have only but to look at the mishandling of cases of abuse in the Catholic Church to see how that still afflicts and affects us where there were all too many times where to protect the reputation of the church or a certain clergyman, wrong-headed choices were made that did great harm. And we see David making that same kind of choice here. And it's also a reminder to all of us that this desire to keep covering up, to find our own way out of our moral failures, in the end propagates the harm that the original failure caused. How absolutely remarkable that 
Here as David has been taking his leisure, and note how the story begins. David rose from his siesta. He was resting. He was taking a nap. He rose from his rest, and temptation was waiting for him. It's not the woman who tempted him. The temptation was within him. How important that is for us when we rise from our rest, when we linger in our happiness. And it's not that rest and happiness are bad things. We have to be aware of what is waiting for us. It's often the case, it's all too often the case in religious, in, as we grow in our faith, that sometimes after we have powerful, moving, grace-filled moments and experiences, there's something negative waiting for us on the backside. And the very positive we've gone through means that we get caught by surprise because we're not ready for it. We're in the moment of everything is grace, everything is good, everything is blessing, and what sneaks along is something that isn't quite grace and blessing. And how easily we can be knocked off center and knocked off course. We see it writ large here in the person of David, but these same tendencies assert themselves in the believer's heart across all generations. Not so dramatically, typically. Not with such amazing co consequences, typically. But it is an all too common pattern. Curiously, the responsorial psalm that we had today is attributed to David. Now, we're not going to have mass here tomorrow because of what looks to be an incredible amount of snow arriving on our property. Tomorrow is where we would hear Nathan the prophet bringing David to a moment of accountability for this, confronting him with the wrong that he has done, a wrong that David himself doesn't fully recognize until it is thrown in his face by the man of God. And the tradition is that the psalm we heard today and we'll hear again tomorrow as the response was that cry of the wounded guilty heart that David himself lifted to heaven when he faced how far he had fallen here. In your Bibles, it's Psalm 51. It is the greatest of the penitential psalms, the great miserere me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I have sinned against you. In our responsorial, we change the pronoun. We say, have mercy on us, O Lord, for we have sinned. But the prayer, the psalm is in the individual. Have mercy on me, for I have sinned against you. You know, Lent is still several weeks away, but it wouldn't be a bad idea just to linger with that psalm a little bit. It's Psalm 51 in the Douay translation. It's Psalm number 50. This moving cry of the heart, acknowledging the seriousness of my guilt 
and the desire to be made new. Because it's that psalm which cries out from the pain of guilt and the need to be forgiven and articulates the desire to be washed clean and made new and to make a new start that bridges us into our gospel reading today where the Lord speaks of that other hidden reality. That reality of his word and his grace that has been sown. And how when that is present in the heart, it too operates. Sin is not the only thing that operates within us. Wickedness is not the only plant that puts its root in us. There is also grace. There is also goodness. There is also the gospel. And once the gospel has been sown in the heart, part of coming to Mass regularly is to keep sowing the gospel, sowing the presence of the Lord in our hearts. Note, the kingdom doesn't grow on its own. It has to be sown first. And so when we come and we allow the Lord to sow his goodness within us, then there is that hidden movement of grace, little by little, where oftentimes, without our aid and without our understanding it, we simply go through the action of sowing the word, sowing the word, sowing the word. It begins to produce an effect upon us. Earlier in David's life, he cultivated that kind of trust in the Lord that allowed him to stand before the giant and triumph. Later in life, it seems that at some point, that movement of sowing the relationship with the Lord paused a bit, and that made him vulnerable. But what we will see is as his sin is pointed out to him, David understands that. And then in his heart, that seed of his relationship with God, which is still there, grows again, blooms again, bursts forth again. Note how beautiful the teaching of the Lord is in our gospel reading. Among all the realities and struggles that face us in the world, it seems at first a small thing. We look at the example of the saints, and we see how small we are. And yet the Lord says it's exactly that smallness which is the necessary beginning. And out of those small beginnings, greatness does indeed come. And even after mighty failings, greatness still can emerge. Goodness still can grow. And imagine David confronted with the magnitude of what he had done. How small and tiny his faithfulness and everything must have looked to him in the face of so great a scandal, so great a crime. like a mustard seed, the smallest of all things. But earthly size is not the measure. The capacity of life in the seed is the measure. And out of that small beginning, greatness reemerges in his life. 
just as the Lord, by means of small moments of grace, can produce great fruits within us. And oftentimes we don't realize it's even happened until the fruits are manifest in front of us. What a remarkably beautiful truth that is. The example of David is sobering, but we also know that what we see in this example, shocking as it is, is not the end of the story of the great king. And so too then, it is a call to us to really treasure that small presence of grace and goodness that the Lord has sown within us and to regularly not rest in external blessings that he gives us, but to rest in the movement of grace, small and hidden as it may be, that is already taking place within us. Amen.